0: Welcome to episode 196, Grief Affirming Practice, Understanding and Supporting Traumatically Bereaved Clients, featuring Terry Weibel, Licensed Clinical Social Worker. Make sure to subscribe to be alerted about future episodes by Clearly Clinical. Learn. Grow. Shine. Hello to our listeners. My name is Beth Irias, and today I am honored to be joined by Terry Weibel. She is a licensed clinical social worker, and her passion and focus in the clinical world are improving the way that practitioners show up for grief and for grieving clients. And I am delighted and honored to have this conversation with her today. Thank you for joining us, Terry.
1: Thank you, Beth. It's really an honor to be here. I appreciate you having me on.
0: So before we dive into this, I know you wanted to take a moment. So why don't we start there? And then um, I would love to hear more about you and about your practice and how you came to do this work.
1: Thank you. Yeah. Before we begin, I I feel it's really critical for us to take a beat. Um, I want to take a moment of silence to be in memory of anyone, anywhere who might die today and anyone who may be listening, who has someone that they love very much that they're remembering I want to just take a minute to make the opportunity for the presence of their absence here right now and just be quiet and remember. Thank you so much for that, Beth. It feels really important to open this conversation with ritual and memorial. Thank you. Um, I want to go ahead and introduce myself. My name is uh, Terry Weibel. I am the founder and clinical director of Center for Compassion. We are a multi-provider group therapy practice, and we specialize in supporting individuals and families who are traumatically bereaved after the sudden unexpected or out-of-order death of someone that they love. Um, I'm also the founder and education director at the Southwest Institute for Grief and Trauma Studies, and um, our core focus is in closing the gap in grief education for helping professionals. And um, I'm an LCSW, which the majority of listeners, I would assume, probably know what that means to be an LCSW, but I'm also um, a fellow in thanatology and FT. Have you heard of that before? Bethany, you know what it is. I am not. So so the field of thanatology is the field of death, dying, and bereavement. And um, there is a credentialing body called the Association for Death Education and Counseling that offers different levels of credentialing sort of as a way to um, bring, you know, some education awareness around what it means to work in the field of of death, dying, and bereavement. And um, years ago, I became certified in thanatology. And then um, over my years of specialization, became a fellow in thanatology. So it really is um, an area of focus specialization that I'm really passionate about. Um, and and actually, my um, my credential as a fellow in thanatology took me longer to get than my LCSW. Um, it's 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 something that you have to be doing a lot of work in specifically in this field in order to attain it. I feel really proud
0: Awesome. Thank you. Thank you for sharing. So now that you have told us a bit about yourself, tell us about this specialization, that this is the thing that you professionally zoomed in on.
1: Yeah. So um, in 2012, I experienced the death of my daughter. Um, She died suddenly, unexpectedly. Um, We had no idea that she was going to die. And I was already in the field of social work at the time. And, um, you know, I had been in therapy for many years and, and you know, thought that perhaps my field might be able to support me after her death. And unfortunately, I really had the experience of my profession failing me on the other side of her death and really um, didn't feel that my colleagues were able to help or support me in a meaningful way. They just really didn't know what to do with me. You know, they said all the wrong things. They, um, they suggested that I should be over her death, that I should find closure um, and, and it really, it left me feeling profoundly alone and unsure where to get help. and. Luckily, you know, I got connected with some good support through nonprofits, through um, through other social support, through over time, the right therapy, which was was wonderful, meaningful. Um, And as a part of that, started to explore also my own personal history beyond her death. And as a part of that, started to recognize my family history was just completely sprinkled with this traumatic death through generations of time, that it was not just her death, but, you know, I was also a bereaved sibling. I had experienced the death of my brother, which is what put me into the field of, of social work. He died as a young adult, also suddenly, unexpectedly, so my mother was a bereaved mother. Also through that exploration, realized, oh, I'm named for a child who died. My mom's sister died as a young child at age five, so my grandmother is a bereaved mother and really started to just look at our family system and history and understand it in a different way than I ever had before. And yes, I had the education and training from having been a therapist, but I didn't really see it through the lens of grief and traumatic death and family systems in relationship to death the way that I could after she died and I really started to understand it differently. Uh, And as a part of that, it felt important for me then to kind of bring this newfound learning education both experientially and then also, you know, from data and research because I just became so fascinated with this gap, like this real lack of education that we were providing to professionals and it felt important to bring it forward in the best way that I could. And so, um, as a part of that, I developed Center for Compassion. It was just me on my own at the time, and then um, started bringing on some more professionals. And now we've we've grown, grown pretty significantly. And um, we're trying our best just to um, hope that grievers are only met with compassion in the world and um, bring as much grief education to others, both professionally, and then also to our clients as we can.
0: Wonderful. Um, thank you for your disclosure. And I'm sure many of us can relate with The idea of our life experiences contributing not only to our place in the field, but what we really focus on and what we become passionate about. Uh, I too come from a family littered with traumatic losses and bereavement. And it is interesting to look at generations over time and the way that these moments completely shaped, reshaped the trajectory of a family, the story of these lives, Mm -hmm. and how everything changed after those events.
1: Yeah, that's right. That's exactly right. And then how, you know, behavioral patterns, um, places in the family system, so many things that that were information that I knew, again, as a part of being a therapist, like I could see, you know, specific roles in family systems or again, patterns of behavior, those sorts of things, but I hadn't understand them really through the lens of traumatic grief and traumatic death until my daughter died and I really started observing it in that way and it shifted my understanding of things in a found way. I'm going to let you call it, where in the world do we start? (laughs) So I think one of the things I wanna start with is, um, kind of getting some basic grief education out of the way so that I'm using the same language people might be understanding when I say it. So I wanna start with defining what's grief, what's trauma, what's traumatic grief, what's bereavement, because they can kind of be used interchangeably when people aren't necessarily talking about the same thing, right? So in the literature, grief itself is defined as the experience of pain or loss that someone has when they lose someone or something that they hold in deep regard, right? That's pain about something that you lose, but it doesn't necessarily mean a person. That grief can be experienced as as a result of losing something. Trauma is a subjective experience. Everyone knows that, right? In our field now, we have vast education about trauma, which is wonderful. I'm so glad that we have vast education about trauma. Part of why I am bringing education into the field now about grief is because we don't we don't have it so much about, about grief. Um, trauma is a subjective experience where one experiences distress in relationship to something in that your coping is unable to meet the distress that's outside of you at the time, right? And it's usually exposure to something that causes psychological distress such that you're unsafe, usually in the circumstances. So that's grief. That's trauma. Bereavement is the experience of grief that a person has after the experience of a death specifically so it would be grief longing sadness that a person experiences as a direct result of a death but not just a loss in general and traumatic grief in the literature is this space of a venn diagram right if you're sort of looking at grief and you're looking at trauma together right next to each other bereavement and trauma even though i just use the word grief bereavement and trauma sort of if you look at them a Venn diagram together, right in the middle is traumatic grief. And it's a space within which a person would be experiencing the distress of a trauma experience in addition to the distress of a grief experience. And in the literature, it's bereavement specific. Is that making sense? So even though it's not traumatic bereavement, we're saying traumatic grief in the literature is grief that one experiences after a sudden, unexpected, out of order or violent death. And the majority of the, the clients that I serve and that I work with, um, that I spend my time with on a consistent basis are traumatically bereaved. They're traumatically grieving. Thank you. Um, Thank you for breaking those down and giving us a
0: framework to jump off from. Tell me more about traumatic grief and how our experience of loss is different in circumstances, as you said, that are sudden, unexpected, out of order, or violent.
1: Yeah. So one of the hallmark differences of traumatic grief from other experiences of trauma or even grief specifically um, is that death is a certainty, not a probability. And so when traumatic grief happens, you know, the experience of death awareness, the experience of what we call mortality salience, comes right to the forefront. This. Deep experiential awareness that you and everyone you love is going to die. It becomes this forefront experience walking out into the world that you're never safe from, right? That in other experiences of trauma, you might be able to over time start to feel safe, you know, with exposure, with some distance, you might feel safe from the trauma. It might be a probability of happening again, but over time, you slowly start to feel safe from it. However, With traumatic grief, there's the awareness that you're not escaping death and and the people around you are not escaping death, that it's going to come for you and it's going to come for everyone that you love and it can come at any moment in time. And when you have something so sudden, unexpected, sometimes violent happen, then nothing in the world feels safe because there's uncertainty as to when, when death will come. And beginning, you know, a close, intimate relationship with with death and dying and with grief itself is part of what's different in serving people who are traumatically bereaved and not having the fear to do so, not having the fear to go close to talk about death, dying, to not feel afraid to talk about you know, the depths of despair and longing that are present in that and um, really coming to terms with, with mortality itself. Um, it's painful. It can be scary. But at the same time, it's, it's part of what makes the experience different for, for traumatic grief from other experiences of trauma.
0: We're going to talk about diagnosing and, and we'll get to that piece. If we have experienced a event that caused traumatic grief, does that ever get downgraded
1: to grief and bereavement? It's a good question. So um, grief itself is something, especially for the traumatically bereaved, grief is something often that is a lifetime experience, right? It doesn't, it's not something that they stop experiencing at some point. Um, Their relationship to it over time begins to change. So so perhaps, you know, the intensity of the trauma itself in the first few years, that the edges of that may start to to, um, soften a bit over time. But um, you know, the experience of being in relationship to the person who died, that's that's not something that changes necessarily. Um, so I guess to answer your question, the nature of um, defining something as traumatic grief doesn't change because the nature of the death itself is part of what defines it as traumatic grief. So it wouldn't necessarily change simply because time has passed. Or and I'm very much using air quotes resolution of trauma. Yes, that's right. And um, you know, in the literature itself, we we know now that in terms of um, working with grieving people, using the language of resolution or moving on or um, completion or acceptance or those sorts of things really is not helpful for grieving people. Um, that it adds more stigma, shame uh, and self-blame for them a lot of the time around their experience of grief. And, and, and that's not to suggest to someone that you know the really intense experience that they may have of traumatic shock or um, intense trauma that they have in the beginning of their grief is something that they'll experience every single day for the rest of their lives, but also suggesting to them that at some point they won't feel sad Right. At some point, they won't miss this person at the holidays. At some point, they won't have life events and wish the person were there. That in and of itself can create more self-blame, stigma and shame because you're suggesting that what they're feeling is something they shouldn't or that they're doing it wrong or that they're grieving in a way that they shouldn't be grieving. And so... Um, Yeah, there's even for some grieving people, um, even the word healing for them sometimes can be a challenging word because it implies a fixed endpoint. You know, it implies this time at which they will be done with grief rather than offering this opening of opportunity of awareness that their grief and their relationship with grief is theirs and it is something that they will be um, defining for themselves over their lifetime. Thank you. Terry, I'm sure many of our
0: listeners are having the same reaction or a similar reaction to me as somebody that experienced traumatic bereavement relatively early in my life, certainly connecting with the idea that um, it's messy, it's inconvenient, it changes you, it makes you show up in the world differently. And people in our world may not be equipped to show up back and and I really viscerally remember that experience of looking at the world around me and what I've been through and other people who simply couldn't understand it and it was like well yeah then you either push it down or you figure out how to tie it up in a nice little bow we just move on um, and that I really at that moment in my life would have loved that option. (laughs) And it was just not going to work that way. So it felt like there was this bar that had been set of like, okay, you go and we do this ceremony, whatever that ceremony is. In my case, when it happened, I was, this is the days before cell phones. As I say, I was bebopping across Europe and backpacking when it happened for me. There was no opportunity to get back in time for the funeral. It was just a series of awful events. And I came back home, came back to the United States with just the most unusual sense of disconnect to everybody around me and to who I was before I left, before that happened. Um, And... Like I said, I think many of us can relate with how utterly alone you feel and completely groundless.
1: That's right. That's exactly right. Yeah. There's so many things are coming to mind for me as you're talking, Beth. And I'm sorry to know that you also know grief in the way that you do. Um, And, you know, you talked about it being messy and inconvenient and wild and untamed and and it's because it's connected to love, right? In the same way that love is wild and untamed and messy and inconvenient and powerful, that grief is the same because it's directly connected to our love. We only grieve for things that we love, you know? And, and that experience you're talking about, you know, there's a philosopher who talks about it being shattered assumptions, that, that you wake up in the morning and everything that you thought you knew about the world isn't true anymore. It's not, you know, you don't know where you're safe. You don't know who you can trust. You don't know, you know, what tomorrow will hold and whether or not you even wanna be here in the life that you have. And you're waking up to something that's different than you ever would have wanted for yourself. And and what happens with that is alienation, exactly what you're talking about. And it, and it's, it's precisely why grieving people need others around them so much and also why Other people are often unable to show up because they don't have that frame of reference to understand how disconnected you might feel. Um, But we also know as human beings, belonging is so important. And in the moments in our lives, when we feel most alone, and we feel most disconnected, we need others. (sighs) There's so many directions
0: that we can go with this. Before we move out of the Foundational knowledge about the difference between grief, traumatic grief, um, bereavement. Can you talk a little bit about the piece in the Diagnostic Statistical Manual? Understanding as we're having this conversation that the world of diagnosing in The United States is ever evolving and there are inherent limitations to diagnosing. And for those of you listening, please feel free to listen to some of our other uh, episodes where we're talking about diagnosis and kind of application and uh, ethnocultural lens and these important pieces. Uh, But so I'll let I'll let Terry take it from here in the diagnosing piece and what to keep in mind.
1: Yes, absolutely. And I also want to make sure we go back to um, talking about um you know theoretical underpinnings after this so we have an opportunity for for um for listeners to better understand sort of how we got to where we are in terms of what we know now about grief theory and supporting grieving clients but but um you know in in explaining kind of a bit about prolonged grief disorder how it landed in the DSM-5-TR where we are now i really like to start with this quote from Cheryl Strait do you know Cheryl Strayed? She, Yes, I do. Please share the quote. Yeah. So Cheryl Strayed is a writer. She wrote the book Wild. Um, it is a memoir about her experience of um, hiking. Um, I can't remember the exact hike. It's, um, oh goodness, it, it's this up the Pacific Northwest and I can't remember the exact name of it. Regardless, after her mother's death, um, she wrote this book Wild uh, as a memoir to the experience of her grief. But uh, this quote from her is, if... As a culture, we don't bear witness to grief. The burden of loss is placed entirely upon the bereaved. While the rest of us avert our eyes and wait for those in mourning to stop being sad, to let go, to move on, to cheer up. And if they don't, if they have loved too deeply, if they do wake each morning thinking, I cannot continue to live, well, then we pathologize their pain and we call their suffering a disease. And it feels like it just illuminates for me so deeply uh, the experience of prolonged grief disorder now landing in the DSM-5. And I, you know, I, I full disclosure, have some strong opinions about this. Uh, and and I, at the same time, want to make sure that I kind of present some understanding in, in um, the what the arguments for in terms of benefits of having the disorder itself and then, you know, the limits of that as well. But also knowing I stand on the side of feeling that including this diagnosis will only further alienate um, grieving people in the way that you and I were just talking about. So um, historically, there had been the bereavement exclusion in the DSM up through the dsm four. There was this exclusion that said essentially if someone has experienced a death within the last year of time even if they meet criteria for some of these diagnoses we essentially say they you know they don't meet criteria because they've experienced a death so we can't diagnose them with one of these diagnoses that was up through the DSM4 in the DSM5 they removed the bereavement exclusion so after that you had 2 weeks So then it was, okay, well, if you meet criteria for an MDD diagnosis, a GAD diagnosis, a PTSD diagnosis, but someone you love has died in the last two weeks of time, then you don't meet criteria. If it's been more than two weeks, then you could meet criteria for one of those diagnoses. With the TR, they have now included prolonged grief disorder as a completely separate disorder from the other disorders in the DSM. And prolonged grief disorder essentially says, if you are experiencing this litany of, um, you know, quote, I call them quote, symptoms that could meet criteria one year after someone you love dies if you're an adult, or six months after someone you love dies if you're a child, then you have a diagnosis of prolonged grief disorder. There are multiple problems with the diagnosis itself. I'm just gonna read you some of the, the criteria. It's things such as intense yearning and longing for the deceased person. So let's say a 10-year-old lost their mother in a car accident, and six months later, they're still experiencing longing, yearning for their mom who died, then we're considering that something that's pathological. And in my mind, that does not connect with the humanistic aspect of understanding the very normal human experience of loving someone and having them die. Um, one of the, you know, all of the criteria, when I look at them, they're pretty common criteria for what someone who's traumatically bereaved would be experiencing. So there are things like identity disruption, um, intense emotional pain, difficulty reintegrating into your relationships, which is often the experience of grieving people, because like you had noted, Beth, A lot of people in the world don't know how to show up for grieving people. So when you go into a social circumstance and you bring your grief there and people are not interested in talking about your grief or they don't know how or they stigmatize you for wanting to talk about your grief, then the responsibility, again, is put back on you for not being able to reintegrate back into into social life. Uh, So that's what some of the criteria are. The one of them that's pretty concerning from my perspective is the very last one, which is, the bereavement reaction clearly exceeds expected social, cultural, or religious norms for the individual's culture and context. And my question about that is, according to who? Who's determining that? Is someone in the client's life determining that? Is the client themselves determining that? And then what if they have intersecting identities? Exactly which culture is it that we are referring to that would be beyond that culture's expected norms? um so it really makes me pause to question whether or not the diagnosis itself is something that's problematic or if it's really just the lived experiences of people who've had this experience because if the people inside of traumatic grief are saying oh no no that's just what it's like to live with traumatic grief but someone outside of them is saying it's problematic i'm not quite sure if it actually is um definitive measure of the experience itself so the arguments that, that they've made for the diagnosis itself are that it expands access to care for grieving people because it adds an accepted diagnosis for insurance benefits i mean that's the primary argument is we need to bifurcate this out make sure we have specific criteria for something that's separate from these other things so that we can use it for insurance benefits. In addition to that, if we have something that's separate with a separate criteria, then we can appropriately measure it as separate from a post-traumatic stress disorder diagnosis, etc. So it gives opportunity in terms of research for those things. Um, for some grieving people, they also say that it gives them, you know, validation of their experience of grief, that if it's called prolonged grief disorder, it helps validate what their experience is. But at the same time, my sort of sense about that is who's invalidating you that you would need to have validation that your lived experience of your grief really is as bad as you are experiencing it. And, um, the one last that they talk about is really about opening up research funding again, because if we have this separate criteria and diagnosis, then we're able to to um, to get access to to funding for for more research and and the, you know, the work toward getting it included in the DSM has been going on for about 25 or 30 years. And uh, it was developed really out of them seeing a subset of individuals in the data that they noticed were having different experiences than those who were, you know, having major depressive disorder, et cetera. And they identified that they were grieving. One of the things that's really problematic about prolonged grief disorder itself is that what they identified is about 4% of the grieving population meet criteria for prolonged grief disorder, 4%, right? So in my mind, I'm thinking, well, about 4% of the bereaved are traumatically bereaved. So are we really just discriminating against a subpopulation of people, again, who are saying, no, this is just what this experience is like from the inside out. It's not problematic. And then in addition to that, if it's only 4%, how many clinicians, psychiatrists, psychotherapists, how many of them really have enough training and education in grief work to know that it's really only 4%, right? That it, it it just, you know, creating it as a diagnosis puts it in this position of being able to call any experience of grief and grieving after a one-year time period, something that is now pathological. And we know the history of 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 the DSM in terms of turning normal human experiences into pathological experiences, right? I mean, think about sexual orientation disturbance or gender identity disorder, right? These are things that are normal human experiences that were turned into pathological mental illness. And again, it's someone inside the experience saying, no, this is just what the experience is like, then I'm not quite sure why we're turning it into a diagnosis. the other things that are sort of concerning about it is that the language of the criteria is unclear. Um, it's really subjectively defined. For example, they have, um, you know, language about guilt, and it, that's really subjective depending on the circumstances. For example, if you have a bereaved parent who accidentally contributed to their own child's death, and you also have that 10-year-old I was talking about whose mom died in a car accident but wasn't with them at the time, they may both be experiencing guilt, but their experiences of guilt are very different, right? One as a 10-year-old is around magical thinking and one as an adult who did accidentally contribute to their own child's death is grappling with self-blame and regret and things that they wish they had done differently. Is it making sense?
0: Well, and like many diagnoses sometimes in the attempt to write these things out and even just the limitations of language and interpretation, so much nuance is lost.
1: That's right. That's exactly right. Because the the context of um, the death itself and the nature of the relationship are not considered. So that's part of what you know, when I look at it, that you know, there's no consideration for what was the nature of this death that you may still be experiencing increased longing and yearning and missing. And also what's the nature of the relationship, that those two things are in no way considered as to whether or not these symptoms that are showing up are something that are really, you know, problematic or are just a part of the experience of what it is to be a person who is living without someone they love very much.
0: Thank you. Thank you for breaking that down and for the thoughtfulness in presenting it. Um, Because there are so many different schools of thought, you know, it's these are really complicated concepts. And looking at many diagnoses from a more comprehensive perspective and going, well, is that really disorder, quote unquote, or is that just this part of the human experience that we no longer fit into the box that we fit into before because of how we're sleeping or what we're talking about, or we can or can't work or whatever it is, whatever checkbox. But I think you bring up a valid point, which is who is the person making this determination?
1: That's right. And where is the distress about the distress coming from, right? Is the distress about the distress externally imposed by someone in your environment who's suggesting that? Your desire to talk about this person for an hour of time is uncomfortable for them. And so it must be problematic. Is the distress something internally imposed that for you yourself, you're believing there must be something wrong with me because I wanna watch videos of my child after their death. I hope it's making sense kind of how I'm describing it.
0: Absolutely. Out of curiosity for clinicians who are listening, who are doing grief work, who are using insurance benefits, and find themselves in this exact position of, okay, this person in what they've been through, their experience, the signs right now do not meet criteria for a major depressive disorder for insert other diagnosis here. And so we find ourselves back staring at the DSM blinking, going... Okay. So I want to continue right. So if we're if we find ourselves in a situation where from the way the material is presented in the DSM and what's expected from us from a third party payer perspective is it really then how the clinician is presenting that information to the client to try to limit b- the potential risk of alienation.
1: Yes. So, I believe really deeply in informed consent around diagnosis with clients, right? And and I just had this conversation actually with a client who's in the field uh around our decision making in discerning what is appropriate, what meets criteria and what diagnosis we're going to use as we move forward. Um and m- my clients know that I will not use a prolonged grief disorder diagnosis. We've had the conversation um they are aware of why I won't use the diagnosis, uh, and if they would like to have a diagnosis that is, you know, a prolonged grief disorder, they they would work with someone else. But most of them have a real deep understanding of why, and they agree with it. Uh, and, and typically, what we do, you know, um, if we can, if it is appropriate. Um, we typically use adjustment disorder unspecified with the specifier of death and disappearance of a family member. And if you look closely at the criteria, especially if you're looking at ICD, if you look closely at the criteria, it says six months since the stressor or the effects of the stressor have happened. Right. And so the effects of the death of a person you love is something that's going to be enduring for a lifetime. So there won't necessarily be a time at which there will be six months since the effect of the stressor is still affecting you. Um, and, and, And that's not to necessarily say that, you know, that's prescriptively following the letter of the law in diagnosis. And at the same time, I think it causes the least potential for harm and is most accurate to what we could say may potentially be happening because it's it, it, i also believe it's not a disorder right i don't think that it's a disorder that they're attempting to adjust to this death in their life and at the same time i do think that we need to reduce barriers to care and give people access as best
0: as possible Thank you. I appreciate that. And for our listeners, if you haven't had a chance, uh, Dr. Jared Keeley recently had a conversation with us about some of the nuances between the ICD and the DSM. And so I'm glad that Terry brings up that point too, because there there really is more to diagnosing and more complexity and nuance than necessarily what we're just seeing in the DSM when we're looking at this from a more interas- international holistic perspective. Um, so thank you for bringing up that point. Um, moving out of the piece of diagnosis and categorization. As you've pointed out, many helping professionals may not have very much dedicated training in grief and bereavement work. Can you talk more, as you mentioned, about like the theories and how this has developed over time and our understanding of what quote unquote grief looks like?
1: Absolutely. Yeah. So, um, I like to even go back to start with Freud because, um, I think it's fascinating for people to learn that he became a bereaved parent. And after he became a bereaved parent, he essentially said, nine years after her death, he said, this is just the pain of what this experience is like. It's not going to go away. And it's a direct results of the love that i have for my child and he talked about his foundational understanding of everything he had done before that being changed as a result of her death and i think it's fascinating that it sort of got lost in time with how how long it's taken us to catch up if that makes sense so um so i think i've heard this on other podcasts and that you've done in the past and and it bears repeating i think most people hopefully at this point, no. <laughs> Kubler-Ross's work um, on death and dying um, was published in the 70s. I believe I have to go back and look at the exact dates. But um, her work was seminal in terms of changing the discourse, the conversations around death and dying. It sort of opened up posthumous movement, which is all incredible and absolutely wonderful. And at the same time, it got misappropriated for grief. Right. It was meant for death and dying. It was meant for the experience of a person who is dying, coming to the acceptance of their death, not the experience of someone who's grieving accepting the death of someone. Does that make sense? And so um, after her work, sort of around that time, um, there was some new developments that happened in the 90s. Uh, there was a man named Dennis Klass, and he spent about 20 years sitting with bereaved parents. And as a part of that work, he developed something called continuing bonds. Have you heard of it before? Uh, it's this incredible sort of shift in our understanding in grief work. Historically before that, there had been this idea about detachment from the person who died. There had been an idea about meeting quote, closure, there had been this idea about saying goodbye, and classes work really opened the door to this concept that our relationship with a person doesn't die when they die, right? That, that we still, ha- it's, it's founded in attachment theory, really, that, that we still maintain a sense of love, bondedness, and connection to someone, even in their death. And it opened up the opportunity for people to understand the ways in which they might support a person who's grieving from this lens of having a continued relationship with the person after their death. It acknowledges, um, this was uh, developed in around 99. So again, it's sort of like our field has not caught up even though this work's been going on for quite a long time. Um, It acknowledges that grief's ongoing that staying connected to the person who died is helpful for people. Uh, It it normalizes uh, grief related behavior and pro grief related behaviors and suggests that they're helpful for coping. Uh, And so his work sort of shifted our direction in terms of understanding. And I'm sorry, his work was uh, 96. Then around 99, we had a strobe and shut who developed this idea of the dual process model of grief. And the dual process model of grief is uh, that sort of on one side, again, if you kind of look at a Venn diagram, on one side you have loss orientation and on the other side you have restoration orientation. And a grieving person is moving between these two states constantly. They're in loss orientation and then back in restoration and then in loss and then in restoration. But it happens so quickly. It's not as though one day you're in loss orientation and the next you're in restoration. Let's say, for example, a widowed person wakes up in the morning and they're in loss orientation as soon as they wake up because the person's not in bed next to them. Then they're in restoration orientation because they're getting ready for work. Then they're in loss orientation because they are making breakfast, but it's only for one person. Then they're in restoration orientation because they're checking their email. But then they're in loss orientation because when they check their email, they got an invitation to a wedding. And so there's not this capacity for sustaining or maintaining one or the other. It's this constant movement between, you know, being in the experience of the loss and being back restored into everyday life and the demands of everyday life and what that's like. And and the pull between those things can create um can create this uh, overload, what they call dual orientation overload, where a person becomes overstressed as a result of that movement between those things. And it can create what I call a grief brain, that you're you know you're sort of foggy, difficulty with you know follow through, attention, focus, remembering, those sorts of things. Um, after Strobe and Schutt's work around 2009, we had um, Warden developed the tasks of mourning, which is, um, it's a non-sequential model that's ongoing throughout the life course, which you've probably gotten from me through our conversation thus far, um, that you know, grief is not an end point, that it's something that is ongoing for people throughout their lives. Uh, and and his, his tasks were around accepting the reality of the loss, processing the pain of grief, adjusting to the world without the deceased, and finding an enduring connection with the deceased while embarking on a new life. And again, you'll hear that That undercurrent of the continuing bonds there in all of these is this sense that there's still connection to the person who died. There's not disconnection and there's not encouragement of disconnection in any way that the encouragement is to continue to stay connected to them through ritual, through connection, through um, meaningful action that feels important to you and your relationship with them. Uh, And then uh, the Sela grief model was developed by uh, Dr. Joanne Cacciatore. And her model is um, being with grief, surrendering to grief and doing with grief. And these, again, are things that are sort of moved through over time. It's not something that you... Be with grief and then you surrender to grief and then you do with grief that you may be experiencing one and then another comes in uh and and her work is is what i was foundationally trained in after my daughter's death um she's someone who i trained with and mentored with for a long time period before um before starting my my clinical work professionally with clients Thank you
0: for laying that out as succinctly as you did. Um, And Terry and I will get to the part at the end, for those who are listening that are going, I want to learn more about this, we'll get to that part where where we can talk more about resources, um, knowing that there's only so much we can cover in an hour, and that there's so much further learning here. Um, To change gears a little bit, Terry, as we use this information about these different grief categories, if you will, and the grief models out there. With the time we have left today, I would love to talk about some of the takeaways for clinicians of like, what are some of the most important points to be more grief affirming? As you and I talked before the interview, one of the realities is someone who's grieving is being met with what are very well-meaning statements or questions that really can just, make that sense of groundlessness and loneliness so acute so there's the what to do and the what not to
1: do Um, can you talk a bit about that for our listeners yes i'm going to tell you uh a couple separate things so one of them is like what we know from uh from research and then i'm going to give some real practical application of things that people can do like right away immediately that they could start working tomorrow if they have someone they know that that's grieving that they could support. So what we know works, um, if we're looking at data, is um, good psychosocial support in um, the micro and meso system, which is acts of emotional caring, emotional support, instrumental support. We know that those things are really important for people, um, you know, connecting them with appraisal support is sort of this concept of um, mutual shared experience. So it could be with others who've experienced a similar loss to yours. So. For example, if you've lost someone as a result of suicide, that you could meet with other people who've lost someone as a result of suicide or meet with other bereaved parents if you're a bereaved parent. Um, We also know that ritual and continuing bonds is helpful for people. Um, So supporting your clients with engagement in ritual. And there's so many different ways to do this. I mean, it is so expansive. It's beyond, you know, something that you could even Put down in a list of things because of people's cultures and histories and relationships and you know all of those things. There's so many ways to be in, in ritual. Uh, it could look like lighting a candle. It could look like drawing their name in chalk on the sidewalk outside. It could look like wearing their t-shirt. It could look like um, talking to them out loud. I mean, there's so many different ways to be in ritual, um, but it's something that that we know is helpful for people. Um, grief counseling that's trauma and grief informed helps people. Um, And I talked a little bit about some of those. And there's also other ways to get um, additional, you know, training around that. Uh, Trauma therapies, if it is traumatic grief, we know that inter integrating, um, you know, trauma therapy with grief work is incredibly helpful for people. And there's a litany of ways Um, to be doing trauma therapy these days which is beautiful and wonderful Um, and we also know that animals are helpful for people who are grieving we just had a a study that came out recently um, that essentially found that animals outperformed all their human counterparts when when they asked grieving people who was most supportive to them in their grief so beyond first responders and social workers and therapists and pastoral counselors Animals outperform them by about 25. percent So we know that animals are really helpful and supportive for grieving people. And uh, some of the things that people could do right away—these uh, are some that are pretty powerful for grieving people. And they find, you know, when they when they work with us in our practice, they say it's something they found with us that they didn't find anywhere else. Uh, and you know, it's not. It's not as though we're doing it necessarily any differently than most most um, grief supports would. It's just that grief support is um, not easy to find. So uh, some of those things are using the name of the person person who has died with cultural awareness, right? Because in some cultures, it's desecration to use the person's name. But for the for most people, and even sometimes for people who are in a culture where using the name is desecration, they'll say, it's different for me now. You know, it might it felt that way before. Or that's what we've done in our tradition. But for me, it feels different. Um, using the person's name is important. And, and you can even refer to the relationship itself. So for example, I might say, hi, Brian's sister, it's good to see you. And that would be in reference to their relationship and using the person's name at the same time. Um, Remembering with them, so remembering anniversary dates, birthdays days of the month that are hard seasons of the year that are hard really having mindful attention and awareness of that is incredibly helpful and meaningful for people that because you remember and you know that it's a painful time for them it opens space for them to just feel and experience whatever it is that may be coming up at that time of the year without them having to re-explain themselves that they're met with some understanding around it Uh, asking to see photos and videos of the person or items that belong to them and i've had clients like literally bring in a whole suitcase of stuff and we'll go, you know, we look at their clothes and we look at their videos and it's just, it's profoundly meaningful and moving to be able to know these people after they've died. I wish I didn't know them this way. I wish I'd met them when they were alive, but the beauty and reverence that exists there to be able to be with them in it is so incredibly, incredibly powerful. Um, move away we talked about this move away from using the language of resolve recovery completion or getting through um don't rush them grief takes a really 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 long time and if you're finding yourself impatient ask yourself about your impatience rather than suggesting that the client needs to do anything different uh get very familiar with your own Mortality salience, if you're noticing that you feel afraid, right? Like if you're scared, if you notice yourself feeling scared to be with someone, do your own work around your own fear do work around um, your death avoidance, grief grief avoidance, grief phobia, death phobia, if that's going on for you, it's really important that you're talking with someone and better understanding it for yourself so you're not bringing it to the client. Because if you're scared, they'll know you're scared, and they won't feel like they could trust you. And and some of the, the stories are scary stories. I mean, it's hard information to hear. And at the same time, if the helper is a person who doesn't have the have the emotional bandwidth, to tolerate it, where are they supposed to go, right? It's really critical that you as a therapist are able to tolerate your own distress and especially your own helplessness around the experience and just bear witness as best you can. Um, One of the other ones I talk about that is, that I still have to practice is to be really mindful of your speech because many euphemisms are not grief or trauma informed at all, right? And there are ones that you'll just say and then go, "Oh my gosh, I I can't believe I just said that." So here's some examples. Uh, you'll have to bite the bullet. Don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. This will be a jumping-off point. I'll shoot you an email. All if you think about for someone who's experienced a traumatic death, a violent death, the death of someone as a result of suicide, how about it blows my mind. Like really think about it. That I have had to spend a lot of time paying close attention to my words because I've said some of these things to clients and went, oh, my goodness, I cannot believe that just came out of my mouth. Um, So being mindful about your speech is incredibly important, um, but you'll find it only makes you a better practitioner if you do so. Um, Assess and connect them to adequate social supports as best you can. So the piece you and I were talking about earlier about alienation, disconnection, isolation, you know, one of the things that can be foundational in terms of, if you're looking at a quote, treatment plan goal, is surrounding them with psychosocial support, you know, really assessing for where that is, rather than trying to suggest that they need to do something different, trying to find a way in which they can be in community and relationship to others, that they're getting more support can be a really helpful place to start. Uh, and then you know, remember holidays are really hard, like really, really hard for people. We don't we don't have holidays in our office space so that it's a safe space for grieving people because they're inundated with it at the grocery store and on the radio and with their friends and in social conversation. So, you know, any and and also like it would be it would be nearly impossible for us to recognize every single holiday that any of our patients would be you know would be needing to recognize because death touches us all, you know, death comes for everyone. And so in terms of a demographic, it's, it's everybody for us, you know, that we, we work with and support people who come from really, really wide ranging backgrounds and life experiences. And so, um, so yeah, we, we don't recognize holidays necessarily in our office space for that specific reason. And, um, we also really support making sure that we're using um, ritual that's culturally competent. So, so if we are talking with clients about ritual, we wanna mirror their language, we wanna really understand them um, from a subjective lens and an interpersonal lens, and, and know that any suggestions we're making are really just coming from them and we're mirroring that back to them.
0: I know, I want to listen back to everything that you just said, because there's so many nuggets of wisdom in there. Thank you for laying them out as clearly as you have. I know for me, um, what really resonated was the importance of the language. I've absolutely had that conversation with clients before, uh, the sensitivity to certain words that become so normal in our vernacular. Um, I'm thinking for one client about how there was a membership card for a retailer, and it was the retailer and the word addict. And that that language just lands in a very different way for that person. And how we're using certain language, I think you're absolutely right. There are these nuances and there are these um, phrases that are just so part of how we express ourselves, but can land differently for a listener that Make us hesitate, and our bodies have a reaction to that language, even if it's not related to what we've been through or what we've witnessed. Um, so, thank you for that. Goodness knows that one of the pieces to, as you said, um, the things that we can do. Can you speak a little bit too about the things not to do? And I know that I have a vested interest in this because I've been there. You know, I I think for many of us, we've had people say things that feel like they're checking a box it seemed like some socially sanctioned hallmark statement we can make to like make somebody feel better but the whole they're in a better place like can you speak a little bit about that and like our ability as clinicians to sit with not
1: (laughs) (laughs) yes so i mean it I usually say, like, don't use platitudes, they are unhelpful. Like, that's the start and the end of it is, you know, if you find yourself moving into a place where you're trying to fix, change, solve, help, like, honestly, if you're trying to fix, change, solve, help, make something feel different than how it feels, you're probably moving into the wrong space. Just try as hard as you can to stay with what is and what is maybe despair and longing and distress and overwhelm and helplessness. And, and the platitudes are really hurtful things. I mean, they're things like, like you said, everything happens for a reason. It was God's plan. You can have another baby, you can get married again. What are you learning from this? Time heals, I know how you feel. Like all of these things that are just so unhelpful for people, even things like you're so strong, right? If you really look at what someone's saying in that moment, they're saying to you, I want you not to feel what you actually feel because it's easier for me when I sit with you if you aren't distressed, if you aren't sad. And so the implication is that you're doing a quote good job if how you present to them is in such a way that doesn't look as though you're in distress. And so then you you fragment even more right when when grieving people already have the experience of fragmentation of cutting off parts of themselves from social exchange because it's not permissible if someone tells you you're so strong the message you get reinforced is please continue fragmenting yourself because there's parts of you that aren't welcoming.
0: I'm really glad you brought up that last point. I was nodding as you said it. I just saw something the other day and I unfortunately can't appropriately appropriately attribute the quote other than to say it's not mine. Um, But that the idea that when we reinforce strength, it may inadvertently overlook the fact that a lot of times when we're being told we're strong, we're in circumstances that we didn't choose. We didn't choose to have strength. We didn't, we we had no choice. It just, it happened. And so it's not like, oh, I'm going to do this thing and I'm going to start training every day for it or whatever that is. And it's like, okay, we can reinforce the strength of you had to get up every day and needed to make that choice about what you were going to do for the day ahead and what you were going to eat and yada, yada. That's a different thing than one day everything changed and i woke up in a different reality and and i took you know i saw this quote and i took that in because yes it is very much strength looks like xyz and then anything outside of that if we're not trying for stoicism for the appearance that things will go back to the way that they had been before that were somehow not being strong, it's just really problematic the more you look at it and go, wait a minute, <laughs> like we're, we're reinforcing some traits that may be so, socially sanctioned, but this certainly is not helping somebody's experience of their world right now by saying, here's the box, stay in the box. This is more comfortable for me or for people in your family or for your teacher or whoever else.
1: And and that's, that's the exact, you know, sort of language we talk about in the therapy room is what other choice do you have? You know, if someone suggests you're so strong, well, what, what other option did I have? Right. And, and, and again, like if you, if you, if you follow that thread down, the suggestion is that they wouldn't be able to tolerate whatever it is that you're experiencing emotionally. And so they're trying to disconnect from your experience because it feels intolerable for them.
0: That's a really good point that it feels so overwhelming when we put ourselves in somebody else's shoes that we reinforce the strength as an inadvertent platitude.
1: Yeah, and so coming back to exactly what you were talking about before of, you know, encouraging clinicians to um to stay with their own capacity for helplessness. That's really what it is is like the more you can be with your own helplessness. And that's not to say that there isn't agency in this. Of course there is. I mean, there's so much agency in in ritual, in being in community, in remembering, in you know, how you treat yourself in your grief, how you observe how other people are treating you in your grief. Like there's absolutely agency in that. But there is a lot of helplessness because... You can't do anything to change the fact that the person died and you can't change the depth of the grief that you're left with on the other side. And and the clinician can't do that either. You know, a therapist can't change how intense or overwhelming or powerful the grief is, but they can bear witness to it. So much more to cover here <laughs>
0: than what you have shared. For people listening, realizing that they want to learn more, you've mentioned some grief models. Can you talk a bit more about resources for people listening?
1: Absolutely. So, um I'll tell you my information and then I'll tell you some places that you can get maybe access to additional training and then resources for your clients. So, um our practice is Center for Compassion. We are located in Chandler, Arizona. Our, our website is thecenterforcompassion.com. Um if you want some more, you know, information about uh our practice, our practice models, you could Reach out to us there. My um, email address is Terry, T E R R I, at the for compassion.com. Uh, I also offer training and education through the Southwest Institute for Grief and Trauma Studies. Um, and that website is s w i g t s S W I G T S.com. So you could um, get some more information there if you wanted. And then in terms of like additional training and education beyond those things, um there is a certification in compassionate bereavement care through the miss foundation um, and i'm connected with the stela care farm as well um, as an emotional wellness advisor there Uh, and you can find that information at missfoundation.org and there's a litany of additional resources for grieving families Um, beth i can leave you with some of those so that listeners would be able to find them um, both with specific circumstances of death or just for grief in general I could provide you with some of that
0: fantastic thank you um yes let's absolutely do that um terry thank you for showing up today for the thoughtfulness in the conversation that you've had with me i know it's been um, grounding and clarifying and simultaneously healing and for listeners who can't see me Terry saw me grab my Kleenex a couple of times. (laughs) So thank you. I really appreciate your work and I appreciate having you here.
1: Thank you. Thank you for your work and your willingness to have an open heart with me today.
0: You've just finished listening to another exclusive Continuing Ed podcast by Clearly Clinical. If you like what you just heard and you need Continuing Ed credits, please visit us at clearlyclinical.com to check out our one-year membership where you'll have access to our growing library of continuing ed podcast courses. Clearly Clinical, where our goal is to help you learn, grow and shine.